how do you go about making your voice sound like someone else's? And why would you? I'll be chatting to a bunch of people who can answer those questions and many more as they reveal the dark arts of impressionists. I'm Simon Lipson, and this is Making an Impression. I'm delighted to welcome this week beatboxer, stand-up comedian, and of course, impressionist. It's Stefano Paolini. How are you, Stefano? I'm very well, Simon, and thank you very much for asking me to do this. I think this is the first time I've ever actually thought about the craft that has been earning me a living for over 20 years. It's a kind of an arcane art form, and people don't really know how we do what we do. So I'm trying to open the the toolbox a little bit and let listeners get a feel for the sort of things we go through to find a voice. When did you first discover that? Uh, when I was getting requests at the primary school playground, usually it followed an evening when the Muppet Show had been on. Mm-hmm. And then my friends would say, did you see the Muppet Show? And I'd say, yeah, can you do the impression of, hey, welcome to the Muppet Show. <laughs> Hiya! <laughs> uh, so that there, there would be those types of requests. And yeah. then uh, when I went to secondary school, I started imitating the teachers and uh, I remember being in the common room one day and everyone was asking me to do an impression of the science teacher and hit the way he walked. So I kind of mimicked his walk. So I had this ability to mimic people's voices and people's idiosyncrasies with their body language as well. And that's something that I've done throughout, even when I left school. So I, le- I left school when I was 16 and I got an apprenticeship as a mechanic in a, in a garage in Ballum run by two Italian mechanics and we had a number of different customers and I used to imitate the customers as well once they'd left in front of the mechanics and they would laugh and then I I played for a football team and I would imitate some of the football team and again people are always asking you can you do him can you do him I didn't really do celebrities at the time but what happened was I left the job as a mechanic I went to college to do a sports science HND which then took me on to university and I qualified through the FA as a football coach and was then coaching football for um, eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds. And the FA were trying to promote anaerobic activity at an earlier age, so uh, press-ups and sit-ups, but the kids found it quite boring. So I organised this game where I, they loved The Simpsons, they loved Star Wars, so I learned 30 impressions from The Simpsons and I would line them all up and I would say, right, call out a name from The Simpsons. If I can do it, you have to do 10 press-ups. If I can't do it, you have to do 10 press-ups. So, of yeah. course, they would call home and i go, mm, donuts or Marge. Mm, Marge, leave Lisa alone. And Lisa, oh, quit it, Marge, quit it, leave me alone, Marge. Um, uh, oh, is there a butt here? Uh, Mr. Burns, mm, Smithers. And so that's how I started so I was just doing the impressions. And then my friend said to me, have you thought about doing stand-up? And Simon, I, I said, no, I didn't really know what it was. So he showed me a couple of videos of Eddie Murphy, who was doing impressions in yeah. Raw, but was also doing impressions of his family members. And that was the first time I'd seen somebody, because I knew you know, there was impressionists on television who just did impressions. That was the first time I saw someone who could do impressions, but also bring characters to life as well. He suggested doing a stand-up gig, and I didn't really know what it was until I saw Raw. And then that was the game I took on stage. I would stand up. My first gig was 
right, call out on The Simpsons, and if I can't do it, I'll get off stage. I, I went. I was introduced by by Malcolm Hardy, who was the resident MC at Up the Creek on a Sunday night. It, yeah. a, a horrendous gig. Oh, I remember it but, well. Yeah. He, the, the act who was on before me died horrifically. <laughs> um, much to the encouragement of uh, of Malcolm, who then went on stage and went, "Oh, well, the bouncers just come up to me and said." Shall we throw him out? Um, the heckler? No, the comedian. He was shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I was watching this, not really understanding what I was doing. And he introduced me and I did that routine, right? Call yeah. out a name from The Simpsons. And it went well. I, whatever was fired at me, then I did a bit of Star Wars impressions. And that was my entry into stand-up comedy. And I got a few more gigs after that. And then I entered a couple of competitions. So I came runner-up. In so you think you're funny in 2001 to Miles Jupp, and yep. then I came runner-up in the BBC New Act competition in 2002 to Nina Conti, and that's how I made the kind of move from somebody who could mimic people into like a career in comedy and then stand-up, and then the world of voiceover work and the world of stand-up comedy and the world of international gigs and yeah. Edinburgh Festival. There was no history of performing in my family. My my mum and dad are Italian. They moved to London independently of each other in the 60s. They married here and then they bought a house in Brixton. And that's where I grew up. But there was no no family members. Mainly the Italians in my family were all in catering. Um, and I got myself a skilled manual job after leaving school. And somehow I managed to get into the world of stand-up comedy, which basically then opened up a whole myriad of other possibilities. Well, how old were you when you, you, you did that first gig at Up the Creek? I'd imagine the, the first gig I did was in the Dog Star in Brixton in South London. I was about okay. 19 at the time. So I, so I started pretty young, but I gave up for a year because I did a gig in Hammersmith somewhere. It was quite a prestigious club to play. And I wanted to do it again. So I phoned up and said, yeah, can I come and do the club again? And they said, yeah, sure, sure. And they said, what's your name? I said, Stefano Paolini. Then I heard the person on the other end of the phone kind of cut the phone, but she hadn't cupped it enough. And she said, oh, no, it's Stefano Paolini. I've just booked it in. But so-and-so told me never to book him again. <laughs> so I, I heard that. And then she came on the phone saying, oh, sorry, there's no room at the moment. Can you phone back later on in the year? And I said, I couldn't help but overhear what you just said. Don't worry about it. And I didn't do another gig for a year. Yeah. I was mortified. But then I picked up the phone to another club and started getting back into it. You mentioned the playground thing. I think most impressionists discovered th this ability to, to mimic people fairly young. Did you revel in the, you know, the laughter, the people gathering around you, telling you to do voices? Or, you know, I mean, presumably, you, you know, you're a natural show off. Well, introverted is my setting, but if asked, I do like to kind of play up if people ask me to do an impression, especially if it's a voice that they like. But yeah. more often than not, if it comes spontaneously and then someone kind of likes, likes it, it's just come out of the blue, then, and if they're laughing at it, more so than if they've requested it, that I really, really like. Sometimes I'll be away with stand-ups and I'll, I can do a few impressions of stand-ups who aren't famous. Yeah. And then, and then the other comics like it. The, I mean, what I love about impressionism is you have to find the idiosyncrasies of, a, of an individual. That really is a skill where you observe someone or you can find an inflection in their voice 
and you can sum that person up just with one word sometimes. Yeah, I mean, have you got, um, have you got that's interesting that because lots of us do impressions where perhaps we can't even do the full impression if you like. I mean, I, don't, I can't do McIntyre and I've done this on the podcast before, but I just go, <laughs> that's all I do. And it's kind of, you know, if I, if I say to my audience, look, I'm going to do Michael McIntyre, and go, I, you know, I'm, and I don't do anything else than that, I can probably just about sell it. So what, what kind of one note or one sound impressions do you do? Um, unfortunately for you, I used to do a lot of the Simpsons ones. <laughs> <laughs> Just so that our listeners know this, I, I did say to Stefano before the, <laughs> before the show that I'm not really a, a Simpsons fan, but I didn't want to let that stop him because lots of people are. So, yeah, you go on, get <laughs> far away. Um, well, you've got the Marge, which goes, mm, that, that one's quite... Uh, but my, mind you, I mean, l- later on, so I, I used to be the voice of Tony Blair many years ago on a program called Double Take. And so Tony Blair has a very distinctive way of, of speaking. He's very sincere. So I, c- I can do his voice over a prolonged period of time, but to actually condense it into one word, into one way, in, <laughs> yes. into one little bit where you would know who he is, probably not. But right. somebody like Johnny Vegas, um, Yes, that, yes. that you kind of know it straight away. It's Johnny Vegas. Straight off. Just, I mean, I said that it was going to be Johnny Vegas, but it, you can just that. Um, it's like yeah, you just you you can kind of condense it down into one into one sound. Yeah, exactly. Kind of... Early impressions. Then, so you you mentioned that you were doing a lot of the the Simpsons and throwing that out to your audience, and you know, just going for it, which is quite bold, really. It's quite scary because particularly up the creek, where uh, you're just as likely to get a glass. <laughs> flying past your head as, as a nice suggestion of an impression. Um, and I did that once, only once. I came on after Ricky Grover. It absolutely <laughs> killed them. You know, they love Ricky Grover. And I came on doing a few twee impressions, and they, they just looked at me like I was mad. You know, what are you doing up there? But they didn't, they didn't go for me, but they just let me do some silly voices to complete silence, and then <laughs> off I went. You know, past the past the bouncers in their crombies, and you know, ran away. So beyond those cartoon characters you were doing, what other characters kind of characterised your early performances? I used to do Star Wars impressions, and that's not impossible. I used to bullseye warm prints in my tea stick scene back home. They're not much bigger than two meters. Hello, I am C. Freebie, a human cyborg relation, sir. You've never heard of the Millennium Falcon? It's the ship that made the castle on a less than 12 parsecs. <laughs> that's a great one. That's great. Um, actually, your, vo- your natural voice is kind of, it's kind of middling, isn't it? Your natural pitch. And Harrison Ford's way down here somewhere. And yet you've absolutely got that voice instant for me instant recognition that's, that's pretty it belongs in a museum i love his voice as well he's got a great um, voice yeah i mean yeah. The, the, another voice that i absolutely love is michael portillo um yes andrew um my moment of the week was when um, donald trump and remember donald trump is the president of the united states of america suggested injecting detergent would be an effective measure against the coronavirus I was hoping that he'd ingest some there and then, and we would have a live trial. So I don't have to do much in order to, to, to kind of get it. Probably the reason why I love it so much is because I've got a South London accent. And in fact, when I used to do Tony Blair for Double Take with Alison Jackson's programme, you know, I would be talking like Tony Blair, trying to improvise. And then I'd say, do you know what I mean? 
And then the producer would say, Tony Blair does not say, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> on on yeah. take 50. Uh, but Michael Portillo's voice, it's almost like, because it, it, it's completely different to mine and it's so cultured and so educated. Mm. It's almost like I, I can do it, almost do it because it's so different to my own voice. One thing that Alistair McGowan said to me, because I, I was asking him about his impression of Richard Madeley, which was just golden. You know, it was magnificent. He said, actually, the, the thing about that voice was that it was very close to my own, and therefore I found it very easy. And you raised that point there. Do you find voices that are further away from your natural voice easier to do, or the ones that are closer to your natural voice, or is it just... As, as it comes, you know, you're not really thinking too hard about how close it is to your, your natural timbre, your natural accent. What's, what's your process? I think that you're right. I think some that are close to my own voice are easy. Some, you know, like um, somebody like Liam Neeson. I don't know who you are. He's almost using his nose to, to speak. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you. I don't have money. But what I do have is a particular set of skills. It's all through coming down the kind of the nasal canal here. Yeah. Very little it seems seems to be, because he's almost talking with his mouth closed. So that is hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. Well, let's let's go down that road for a second, because you interestingly talked about how you're kind of channeling that sound through your sinuses almost. And then you talk about listening and listening and listening, I guess, you know, and then practicing, practicing. In a way, that's kind of the simple form of how we get to a voice, right? It's something you, you hear and you, you repeat it and you kind of work out the bits and pieces of it, the nuances and the, you know, the, the inflections. For me, and again, this is a conversation I've had with a lot of impressionists, it was just completely instinctive. So I didn't spend a lot of time working out how I did a voice. I just thought, I've got it. I'll stick with that. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to, to deconstruct it. But it sounds like you actually do spend that time. Is that A, to enable you to get the voice, and B, to enable you to remember how to do the voice? I think it helps with an impression like Liam Neeson. And just to let the, the audience know that predominantly I do stand-up work still mm. i do very little voiceover work it's something that i'd love to get back into doing but i normally do stand up so so an impression like Liam neeson the reason why i do it is because i need to do something that the audience recognizes as well so that's seen and taken and but then i do have to think right how do i make this funny because i can't just do the voice so oh. so when i do the when i do the joke he's on the telephone and he says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you. I don't have money. But what I do have is a particular set of skills. Skills I've developed over a very long career. Skills that makes people like me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go, that'll be the end of it. I want to look for you. I want to pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. The deadline for PPI payments is August 2019. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, I did I did that voice there. I watched that clip on YouTube and I wrote down the script and then I listened to it over and over and over again. Yeah. And then when I did it on stage and the audience didn't laugh until I said PPI, then I knew I had the impression accurate. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean, yeah. And, and so, so that one takes time. Now, there's another one that I do, um, Gladiator, the scene from Gladiator where you know he's killed everybody and the emperor wants to know who he is. So uh, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. 
So that one's much more closer to my voice. Yeah. But then at the end, there is, okay, well, the audience are going to know who, who I'm doing because I've probably told them already. So I need a punchline. So, you know, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general to the Felix Legions, loyal son but a true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered son, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. My hobbies include skiing, my favorite color is brew. I went on a gap year to India when I was 19. <laughs> and, and so, so yeah. from there, I, 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 I probably I only do the voice once I've got a punchline. But what yeah. was really nice about Gladiator is, is that it allowed me to do some other voices, which I, which I used to do, but don't really do. So after that, you kind of think, I wonder if Gladiators were interviewed after their fights like football players are now. So you must have had a John Motson equivalent. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Day with me, John Schmoticus. And you join us here today uh, with Harry Canius, fresh from his fight inside the Colosseum. Now, Harry, that was a very difficult start to your fight, but you seem to pull through in the end. Ah, oh, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's always difficult when you're fighting a lion and you're getting attacked by a tiger at the same time, you know. Uh, do you think the loss of your left leg is going to have an impact on the rest of your season? Yeah, well, no doubt the boys are going to be mystic about that in the changing room. But the good news is I'll get automatic qualification for the paragladiators next year. You get me? <laughs> <laughs> so, <I'm, laughs> so, so, so kind of, I, I do the voices once I've got a, a kind of stand-up routine in order, in order to do them. That is uh, key to it, really, isn't it? If you're a, an impressionist who does a lot of live work, a lot of stand-up work, you can't just rely on the fact that you can sound like someone to pitch an act. You can't. I think probably all of us started, I, I certainly started, because I, I could do voices, right? So I would do, oh, okay, Chris, you think, you know, this would be, this would be it, you know, this is all I would do. I didn't have a punchline. So... What, rather like you just sort of yeah, giggled a bit at that because you recognize, you know, you recognize the sound. But after a while, you're going to think, yeah, all right, well, say something funny now. And that's the key, isn't it? You've got the two chances as an impressionist. One is you get a great voice and two is you do a great joke. Preferably, you do the two together. So you would not reveal or you wouldn't showcase a voice without a great line. You wouldn't just do it because you think, oh, you know what, I'm, this is cheap but I can, get, I can get a great recognition laugh out of just sounding like, you know, X. Which is precisely what I did when I first started stand-up. I would go on stage and just, I would get a laughter of recognition just to, and just the fact that I could do the voice. There was no gags. And so I try not to, Simon. I try, like, for one example, one of my favourite voices, I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. It's one of my favourite voices. I've, I've been trying to do Samuel L. Jackson for many years, and I think I'm nearly there. I think it's maybe just one little octave out. But, but where, how do I do a Samuel L. Jackson impression on live stage? And then I saw Harvey Keitel's character, Winston Wolfe, was doing the direct line adverts. And, I was, and so the premise was, I wonder what other characters they're going to use from Pulp Fiction to start doing adverts on television. And I didn't really quite see the link between the two. And I will strike down upon him with great vengeance and furious anger, those who try to poison and destroy my brother. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon him. Christmas at John Lewis. <laughs> you seem quite keen on that. And it's a brilliant device that where you do the voice and then you kind of undermine it or you, you bring in something really ordinary 
in order to to offset that the drama of a brilliant voice. I love that technique because it's a kind of a variation on technique I used to use all the time, and I, you know, impressionists tend to use, which is where you take the person and you put them in the place <laughs> they shouldn't be. I would do an, a, a whole business of you know, here's, this is the news, and it would be you know with the football commentators, so you'd have some terrible disaster and then you just have <laughs> you know maybe you have harry redknapp uh he just go well you know he's a he's a smashing boy you know i think what's happening there he, he he's pushed the wrong button and he's crashed the plane and it, you know he's a, he's a smashing boy is that something you use as well i've tried that before and i've never really made it been able to make it work i'm i'm kind of more like that what we were talking about before just undermining the, the situation like for example i do i do a routine in my act with advert italian adverts but i do them in italian now the audience don't speak italian but what they do understand is if i say italian adverts in italy the perfume adverts they, they don't make sense over here but they really don't make sense over there for example mm-hmm. Chanel. So, <laughs> so you're not you're not expecting to hear a rooster or a cow in a in a perfume <laughs> advert. So I employ it sometimes, which is absurd because you would never see those two things in a perfume advert. So yeah. sometimes I do. If I if I again if I can make it funny in a, in a kind of stand up way, then then I'll definitely employ it. It's a, um, it's a as, great, as, it's a great as, technique that also because your audience will start to cotton on that this is the, the thing that you're doing and then they're kind of waiting with bated breath because you're going to undermine that voice in some way <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that's a great way of keeping them on the edge so then you yeah. get a massive wave of laughter at the end of it uh, it's not I wish I'd used that uh, I wish I'd seen you you know earlier on in my career and I've just stolen that Unfortunately, it took me a long time to kind of develop as an impressionist on a live stage. Yeah. So from going from an impressionist, I tried to become a stand-up who did mm. impressions. And maybe now, because we're in lockdown and there's no live performance to do, I've gone back to writing new material and putting up clips, but they're all impressions-based. I've gone back to my roots. I, do, I try and do one impression a day. That's, that's what my skill set is. Yes, uh, is, is, that, is that pushing you to find new voices? You know, because I think one of the things that we're all we're always trying to do is to find that voice that no one does, you know, or something from left field. And like you're, you're Portillo, I know, I know people have done Portillo, but actually yours is really nailed on. It's you know, it's that character we see in the colourful jacket on the train or on the on that politics show with Andrew Neil. It's that character, and he, that's very different to the shouty character they used to have on on Spitting <laughs> Is that always the search? You know, who who can I do that no one else is doing? I mean, Samuel L. Jackson's quite an unusual one for an English impressionist, I think. I was obsessed with Pulp Fiction and even some of the other voices. Nah, man, I'm pretty far from being okay. <laughs> and even that car journey when, when they're talking. So tell me again about the hash part. Okay, what you want to know? So even John Travolta. And yeah. it's funny because the one voice that I would love to be able to do Christopher Walken is the one voice I've always struggled with. It's yeah, I've never too. really been able to get it. And if, if if I tried now, hello, little man, you know who I am, the friend of your father's. It sounds like Christopher Walken, but it's yeah. not a good impression. I can hear every single mistake in it. 
That's uh, one of those impressions, I think. It's kind of a, you know, a stock impression. Most impressionists have that in their arsenal. I couldn't find it. Just listening to you there, and you're not that crazy about the quality of that impression. I think it's really bloody good. But other impressionists sometimes find the hook that you can't seem to find. And suddenly, ah, oh, yeah, right. Okay, I know what you're doing, and I can, I can emulate that. So is that, is that part of your... Approach. Well, when you're watching someone like, you mentioned Alistair before, he's incredible because he's so consistently incredible. Yeah. Alistair hasn't just got one brilliant voice. Every voice he does is brilliant. Yeah, yeah I know. I know. <laughs> Frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> um, but, there, but then there are, there are other brilliant, like John Coleshaw is a brilliant impressionist. He's not as exact as Alistair's impressions, but what Coleshaw is brilliant at is improvising in the voice he's doing, which is another skill. And then you've got Rory Bremner, who might not be able to improvise as well or might not be able to mimic as well as Alistair. But what he does, he caricatures people. So all those little idiosyncrasies, he exaggerates them. And that's what he's really good at. You can learn something from each. I think each impressionist does bring something new to the table. And it's something kind of worth looking yeah. at because, you know, if I was to try and improvise as Michael Portillo, you would soon see the, the impression unravel. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm very good at kind of replicating and writing something that might sound funny. But if I was actually to start talking about Michael Portillo now and trying to do a dialogue, which I didn't really know, I'd struggle, I think, maintaining the impression of him. That's, that's interesting as well. I, that's maintaining an impression as opposed to doing a kind of a cartoon of an impression, which is, you know, just that little funny snippet that you can get away with. If it's not one that, that's absolutely in your, in your range, it's hard to do. And again, we talk about Alistair McGowan. It's interesting talking on the show, he was saying that he would try to get to the, the root of the person's motivation. What was they thinking? What were they about? He's kind of an actor's approach. But he did say, interestingly, the point that you just raised, that he couldn't improvise. He said, I, I, everything had to be written. If I had to ever come out, out of that, I'd be in trouble. So, yeah, I think Coleshaw probably does have that ability to, I mean, once he's in the voice, he can fiddle around with it and not, you know, and stay there. Lewis McLeod as well. Oh, he is ridiculously brilliant. He's a very funny man as well, yes. without the impressions. Yeah. I did some work with him many, 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 many years ago where he was George Bush and I was Tony Blair. And like I said, Simon, I'd entered from a kind of a working class job and then went to higher education to do a sports science degree into the world of actors and voiceover artists. And I, I honestly, I felt like a fish out of water. Yeah. But yeah. with him... When we were doing the work together, although I was totally inexperienced and was on take 40 for most of the time, he, he was brilliant at taking the lead in the scene and improvising and maintaining the voice and being funny with it at the same time, which is a, you know, three really good skill sets. And then I, I saw him do a live show last year in Edinburgh with Ronnie Ancona, and he was fantastic. He's a wonderful live performer as well. He is, yeah. I, I think he's... As he told me on the show, he's been working since the age of 15, 16. He was doing working men's clubs. And I guess that kind of inures you to all of the, the, the vagaries of performing because any old shit can come at you, frankly, in a, in a comedy club. But <laughs> it hardens you to that. But it also gives you the skills to trust yourself and to have the confidence to just let it go. And he, 
as you say, he's, he's a consummate performer. He's somebody who does that beautifully. We'll come back to impressions in a minute because what I wanted to ask you about was your beatboxing. Now, I saw you many, many moons ago. I think, I think it might have been on telly. Now, I, I knew of you. We, we might have done a gig together. We were talking about that before the show. We couldn't quite remember for sure. We might have been at Jonglers. But I remembered you doing the beatboxing. And I thought, oh, I thought you were an impressionist. And you spent most of your set, it's a short set, doing beatboxing. Was that something you thought, actually, this is, this is my speciality, this is the direction I can take my comedy? Or was it just a, a part of your overall kind of menu of stand-up offerings? I'd say the beatboxing is, again, mimicking. So, for yeah. example, I know Michael Jackson has, it, has his fans and his detractors. But if we just kind of concentrate on the aspect of the sound at the moment. So, so Michael Jackson, he, he's very softly spoken in his quite a high-pitched voice. So she was more like a beauty queen from a movie scene. I said it on mine, but what do you mean? I am the one. Now, if I'm going to do an impression on stage of Billie Jean, there's music as well. So it comes to, to uh, there's a beat. Now that beat I'm making with my, my, by clicking my Adam's apple. And then the beat is, it's quite a simple beat. So it's, that snare is coming from the back of my tongue being pressed against my uh, molars and my premolars and then yep. I'm just kind of like sucking back <laughs> now there's a bass line to Billie Jean which is everyone knows <laughs> so if you do <laughs> but now you have to put the voice in as well now to me that's just another impression it's beatboxing but a lot of beatboxers i think what they make they do vocal percussion with their with their lips that like, the problem with that is if you go and watch a band you never put the band in front of the singer the singer is always in front and then by using this technique here, which I can beatbox in with my mouth closed, <laughs> you're putting the singer at the front, which means you can do anyone. Now, it looks like a jump from some everybody just following because we're a little kind of conversing because it's from empty mountain. Go, 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 go. So, so that's why I learned that technique because then it allows me to do songs in my stand-up set as well, or mu or add my own music in the, in the stand-up set as yeah. well. Blimey! Uh, well, watching that has just made me think. Shit! I'm glad I never tried that. I thought I swallowed my tongue, and they would have just left me there to die. So, what? How? What other songs are you using that with? What other characters are you able to introduce using that technique? There's the, so in my stand-up uh, routines, there's a conversation I have with my careers advisor, who you might remember because it is based on Nigel Clarfeld. Yes, I know Nigel, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, Simon. Yeah. For those of you who don't know Nigel Clarfeld, you probably don't, uh, most of you, he's a, a comedy promoter. He used to run a very nice gig, Bound and Gagged, in, yes. uh, in Bound Screen. Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, he's a kind of a very uh, lugubrious, miserable kind of character, but he knows his comedy. He knows his way oh. around it. So that's just to give you a, 
brilliant uh, Edinburgh prom- promoter as well. But he used to phone me up. So, uh, so he, uh, yeah, all right, Nigel Bannergag. Oh, hi, Nigel. How's it going? Yeah, whatever. Um, are you free on the 7th of June? Yeah, all right, bye. <laughs> and then he then phoned me up and he's like, yeah, uh, Nigel Bannergag. Oh, hi, Nigel. How's it going? Yeah, whatever. Um, you still making them noises? Um, yeah, good. I want you to make them noises at Bug Jam on the 15th of June. All right, bye. So, so, I, so I, I just, I just love the fact that he, he was so business. It was like business. Are you yeah. free? Can you do it? Yes or no? See you later. <laughs> so I had this idea of this careers advisor in my mind, and it kind of made me think about when I was at school, went to the careers advisor, which is why I took a job as a mechanic because my grades weren't really good. So I went to see my careers advisor. Goes and so after a kind of initial guidance, he said, "Right, um, so Steve." can't pronounce your name, so I'm going to call you Steve. Um, says here that your role model in life is Peter Sellers, the impressionist and character actor. So what, you like doing impressions? Yeah. What who can you do? What I can do you. All right, go on then. All right. My name's Mr. Clark and I'm the careers advisor. That doesn't sound anything like me. Then I point to the audience and say, yeah. they're not going to know. <laughs> and and, and, and then, then I do the beatboxing in that routine there. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, so I do the beatbox and I build it up to when I'm beat to, to when I'm doing Michael Jackson. I'm doing four sounds and singing at the same time. He's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so I, man, I managed to kind of whereas before Simon, I think I just used to go on and just beatbox. There was no, there was nothing funny about it. It was oh right, that's good. But there was no humour. There was nothing. So o- over the years, I've I've worked it in, and now it's actually it's like a staple routine I do, and it's and it, and it's funny as well. That's brilliant, man. I'm, I'm trying to think how you uh, maintain the beat while doing a bass line and singing. So that's that takes some doing. Um, all kinds of things going on at once there, which none of my previous guests have ever contended with. Let me move on to your overall portfolio of voices i maintain we can all you know all professional impressionists can probably do you know 10 or 12 really bang on and then you've got a whole bunch of impressions you do well enough for performance purposes and then you've got a bunch of shitty ones that you'll throw out there and try and get you know you 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 stick them in between the good ones and they work because you know it's part of a routine or something what voices would you say are the ones you are nailed on when i do johnny vegas I can't really hear my own voice in it anymore. Um, so that one, I'd say I've kind of got pretty good. At the Tony Blair, I think I've got quite a good Tony Blair as yeah. well. But if I'm doing it live, I never really hear it back. No. Um, so so I'm, I, I, never, I never have that horrific moment where I actually have to listen back to my own work. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and then you do start finding fault in your own impression. But I'd, I'd say some of that, like 90% of the, like if I'm asked to do a voice, I reckon 90% of the time I could probably get it to a standard where, oh yeah, that, that's, that's good enough. But, but I'm lucky enough in stand-up that I can just choose the ones that I think are good enough. I mean, I, did, I, I was with a voiceover agency for a while and they used to phone me up and ask me if I could do a voice. And unless I could do it, I, I never used to say, and probably that was a mistake. I should have just had, an, had a go anyway. Yeah, I mean, this, um, is, this is standard stuff, of course, because my voiceover agent, I've been with her for 25 years, and, you know, I get that call. Can you sound like, uh, <laughs> you know, Chris Evans? And you go, yeah, of course can, of course can. And then you put the phone down <laughs> straight into YouTube. <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, yeah, and, but, but I also, rather like you, I would always confess or own up. 
if I think I can't do a good enough job and, and on the radio or on an advert or voiceover for something, you know, the accuracy is actually, it's, it's noticeable if you can't hit it and you don't want to be that idiot that <laughs> when they ring up your agent and say, he was rubbish, what do you send him for? So there is that, it's also professional pride, isn't it? You don't want to be in that position where you, you weren't good enough. But are there, I mean, are there voices that you get away with then? So, because I, I, I've asked this of a few of the impressionists, are there voices where you think I'm not, you, you mentioned you mentioned a couple earlier on, I'm not getting this, but the audience is loving it. Some, sometimes, but again, I've got, again, in my line of work, I've got the luxury of not having to do. Yeah. And, and also with the stand-up, there, there are a few limitations. So, for example, um, I wanted to do something about British regional accents. So, you, you know, you, you've got a West Country accent. You've got East Anglia and in Birmingham, and then you've got Leeds and Manchester and Liverpool and Glasgow and Edinburgh and Northern Ireland. But what I wanted to do, I wanted to do it differently um, because if you do a routine about a, a, any kind of part of the country or a city, you tend sometimes, because you're not doing an impression of someone, you're doing a character from an area, you tend to stereotype. And what I wanted to do was avoid the risk of stereotyping. So what I did, I did foreign languages in British regional accents. So the audience, it didn't matter whether they understood the language or not, all they would hear is the accent. So for example, German with a West Country accent is Guten Tag. My name is Stefano Paulini. Ich bin ein stand-up comedian and voice over a Künster. And they got French in a Brummy accent. Bonjour, je m'appelle Stefano Paulini. Je suis un stand-up comedian et voici l'artiste. And then I did Japanese with a Yorkshire accent. Kimichiwa! What a shame on them are you so tough and no power in the zoo. What a shame on a poor comedian a bit of a boss you know, and even even with the Liverpool accent. So, you know, the Liverpool accent, but it's so easy. I've seen other comics do Liverpool accents and then just stereotype. Yeah. So I thought, no, I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll, I'll do another. So I'll do, I'll do Zulu in the Scouse accent. Sabu Bona, Igamalami, Stefano Paulini, Amanezo Malaya, Ovele, Makashili. Then there's the Spanish one in a Glaswegian accent. Hola, mio hombre, Stefano Paulini, mucho in mononagista. And then there's fun as the um, uh, Italian with a Northern Irish accent. Buonasera, io mi chiamo Stefano Paolini, io mi chiamo Stefano Paolini. So, so, so I, I grew up in, um, in, in Brixton, I'm born and raised in Brixton in South London, which was a, an area of high Commonwealth immigration. So most of my friends at school, when I used to go to their houses or they used to come to my house, we all had parents who spoke English as a second language, but all of the me and my friends, we all sounded like we were from South London. So it's like immigration se separates race from culture. The two can exist independently from each other. And so when I did that routine, I almost looked at it as a science experiment. I kind of said, right, which are elements and which are compounds? And if they're compounds, it means I can separate the two out. A bit like water, hydrogen and oxygen, you can separate the two and they can exist independently from each other. And, and that way... I'm able to do an accent without kind of stereotyping anything in terms of what that region is known for. And the audience do enjoy it. But the other thing, you know, James Bond is meant to be a, is it a polyglot or a polymath? Somebody who speaks many languages. I think it's a polyglot. Polyglot, yeah. 
but I've never heard him speak any other language apart from English. He's meant yeah. to speak Greek and Italian and Latin and <laughs> Russian. Buongiorno, io mi chiamo Roger Moore. Doppio, doppio, zero, sette. Mi piace vodka martini, girato e mischiato. Bonjour, je m'appelle James Bond. Ah, Bond, gay and zigarada house, Lincoln Driver next. So, so I started experimenting with James Bond speaking all these different languages as well, because he's meant to be, he, he is fluent, but I've never heard him say any of these other languages. I think you're eighth, ninth, tenth person I've interviewed on making an impression. You're the first person I've spoken to who does this combining, A, to show a voice, but B, to wrap it up in something a bit different. You're doing the beatboxing with Michael Jackson. You're doing accents with languages, and you're taking characters and languages rather than simply going, you know, my name is Bond, James Bond, which is easy, you know, that's the easy option. So are you deliberately setting yourself challenges or are you trying to break out of the traditional presentation of impressions on stage? The second of the latter of what you just said, yeah, I think because it's my material and I write it, I've got kind of the freedom to go the direction I want to. And I won't just do the voice for the sake of doing the voice. What I want is the punchline and I want, or I want to do it in a funny way. And in a, in a way that is, is like misdirection or pullback and reveal, like, like the craft of a stand-up. But in something like voiceover work, where accuracy is paramount, that level of creativity, you probably put it to one side. What mm. you're aiming for is just accuracy. But on a stand-up stage, especially with the kind of impressionist that, that I, I want to be on stage, I try and be very, very creative with the outlet. I'm not good with words. I, I can't do a pun or misdirectional wordplay. What I am very, very good at is replicating a sound. And if I can put that sound it, with another sound that totally jar, then that's where I've got comedy. It's working for me, I can tell you that much. And it's obviously successfully for you in your stand-up career. You've got a couple of bits of film that I looked at on YouTube and you, you're just doing straight stand-up actually you're not doing any voices in in those, those admittedly short clips so you trust yourself to just tell jokes just to relate stories rather than as most of us do kind of fall back on the voice because it's it's safe you can hide behind some voices that straight stand-up is very difficult for me um, because it was impressions that got me onto the stage in the first place. And so to work back where I would just be me, I don't think I will ever get to that stage. I, I don't think I'd, even when I did my show Britallion in Edinburgh in 2005, many, many years ago, it was a show about me growing up in an Italian speaking household in Brixton in South London, but it was all based on impressions. So, yeah. you know, my, my grandmother, um, I compared her, to Schwarzenegger, I want your gloves, your boots, and your mouth is idle. Because she was always cleaning. So I had an impression yeah. of her coming into the living room going, rapid, crisp as a reason, party, weapon selection, Hoover. So I, I would just use impressions to kind of tell my story. Yeah. Rather than just doing what most stand-ups do, which is is a very, very difficult skill to it kind is. of go up there and, you know, like a Tim Vine who's just doing uh, pun after pun after pun after pun. Or you have brilliant raconteurs who, like Daniel Kitson, who, who has this amazing use of vocabulary yeah. to tell you his stories. And my skill set 
is just does not lie there. What, what I'm very good at is kind of like, you know, doing what, what I demonstrated in the kind of earlier routines that I was doing before. It's brilliant. It's just so inventive. And it's also unique, I think, as in, uh, somebody who's a mimic, someone who's an impressionist, stepping outside the, the traditional genre, if you like, and, and just going your own way with it. And I think that, A, takes some balls, but B, you know, because it's, it can easily go wrong, this kind of thing. Quite, I used to find sometimes with audiences that, you know, you, I, I used to try and do a bit of stand-up. I don't think I was much cop at it, but I had a few, you know, like three or four good jokes and little routines. But I could always sense the audience kind of getting <laughs> getting restless, and they think, you know, they're thinking, "Come on, do Ronnie Corbett." Uh, it's a really inventive and interesting approach that, because we're running towards the end of the show now. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I wanted to ask you about working with other impressionists. You mentioned working with. Lewis and and I guess a, a bunch of other impressionists in the past and you've been on Dead Rings as well I think so I, I guessed it in 2002 right well I was on it in I was in series one uh, and only series one and and I felt rather marginalized <laughs> given given that Alistair McGowan and John Colshaw were the other two impressionists I didn't get a lot of frontline voices did you find Working with other impressionists, you know, there, there's a batch of voices you can all do. Were you having to get into some kind of voice off in order to get a voice? <laughs> and were, were you finding you weren't, get, you weren't getting the ones you thought you were better at? The, the work I did with Lewis, and probably Lewis is the only impressionist that I've ever worked with right. in, a, in another environment. We did double take with Alison Jackson but I, I auditioned for Tony Blair and I got the Tony Blair part and he got George Bush but I would say that you know I that probably at the time my Tony Blair was better than his Tony Blair and his George Bush was better than my George Bush and and it comes down to personality as well so I'm not very competitive I'm, I'm, a, I'm a beta male if there's somebody in the room who's quite dominant I, I kind of yeah get on with it and and you know if if you invite me in then fair enough and and even in this interview here i mean uh, you've, you've been gracious enough to let me do you know my voices and impressions and and then when when it's you know you've done some as well i'm more than happy to cut yeah yeah you know um, rather than feeling it competitive the, the, i suppose the, the only environment that i've ever felt threatened is when another, there's another impressionist on the bill of a stand-up yeah. show. But so far, what's been quite good is that most impressionists stick to doing impressionists, where, where I think I've developed as a stand-up who does impressions. Um, so I've got kind of, you know, the foreign languages, I've got the beatbox, and I've got the, or the autobiographical bits as well. But yeah, I, it means, but, but I, I'm in touch with a couple of impressions. So sometimes we phone each other up and we start doing impressions, but we're not competing against each other. It's more sharing and then, oh, I see what you're doing there, or, or they take something from mine. Luckily enough, so far, I haven't worked with someone who's incompetent and I thought I could do this better. Yeah. So, so far, that hasn't happened. So I'm, I'm going to say you're, you're lucky you only guested on Dead Ringers because it it's a very kind of macho. Well, it was when I was there. It may not be anymore. Uh, but it's a kind of a macho, my voice is better than your voice. And then quite often, I would do a voice and think, well, I know my voice is the best. And I still wouldn't get it. <laughs> and in the end, I've got to, got to crawl off into a corner and just sulk. Um, so <laughs> you're probably better off not being in that one. Just wanted to mention to you that Alistair McGowan name-checked you when we met, and you, you might well have ended his career, because what he told me was that you were on a show together. I'm not quite sure 
what show that was or a stand-up thing, or I'm not sure. It might have been a, a charity, a charity night. And he said that Stefano Paolini went on before me and he killed the room. He absolutely, you know, he stormed the hell out of it. And he said, and I went on and I didn't. And he said, I realized, you know, he was, he did better than me on that night. And it made me realize that age was getting, you know, was an issue now for, for him. Uh, you was this sort of young, you know, new voice on the scene. And he's a guy who's been around for a long time, had 8 million people watching his show for four or five years. And suddenly he felt like a bit of a dinosaur. And I think there is something in that, not just for impressionists, but for people on the stand-up circuit in general. And again, we were talking before the show and I told you <laughs> kind of how how I felt just too old to be up on a stage. You're much younger than me, but do you ever feel that there's a point at which you're not going to be able to, you know, like beatboxing is something you associate with, you know, 19-year-old kids and you're in your early uh, 40s and you're you're still rocking it. And do you you ever feel uncomfortable doing stuff? Is, Is this stuff you won't do because of your age? That's a really good question. At the moment, I still feel comfortable doing it because I'm, I'm still doing, doing it with conviction. But I think with stand-up, if you do stand-up regularly, like you're doing four or five nights a week, you cannot help but get better if you're doing new stuff, if you're coming up with new ideas. So there, there are a few stand-ups at the moment, like Jeff Innocent, Jeff Innocent is one of the best stand-ups in the country at the moment, but he's he must be in his sixties by now. He is, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I, I think I think this, the the secret is, or, or not the secret, but the trick is is to keep writing. So if you keep writing and you keep coming up with new ideas, you cannot help but further your craft. So after twenty years, I'd say that I've got my first signature routine, which is the foreign languages in British regional accents. Yeah. Other comics like it. They they say you're going to do that because they like listening to it. And when you yeah. get validation from your peers, like comics, you know you're on the right path. Yeah. So I, I think with with the, with the mimicry, that's just something that I can do. But in terms of pushing the art form further, I think if I carry on writing, carry on doing new voices, carry on trying to come up with new ideas, like, like you've just suggested, like Bond saying, speaking other languages, I think I should be all right. If it's, if at any point I stop writing and stop being creative, I think that's when I'll, I'll start to struggle, I think, in a live environment. Yeah, and also I think you probably write, you know, in your kind of true to yourself. So in other words, if you're 60 and still doing this, you'll probably be writing material that works for you as a 60-year-old. So I, I take that on board. But what I what I struggled with was going on stage as a sixty year old and you know doing Andy Murray, who's <laughs> half my age, and it just didn't feel right anymore. And, and, and maybe I, well, anyway, it's all too late for me. Let, let's move on. We've come to the end, and I've asked everybody, apart from Christina Bianco, because I didn't think she could teach me how to do Christina Aguilera, but I've asked everybody to teach me uh, an impression, and then what will happen is I will do it very badly. But if you can take me through the little process involved and then just talk me through the voice and then I'll give it a shot. Okay. Um, what, well, somebody who's been in the media of late, Dominic Raab, the foreign secretary. Wow. I'm Dominic Raab. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to give you an update on today on what we're doing to solve the COVID crisis. 
So, right, so I can tonally I can hear that it's sort of up, up here a bit a bit yeah. So you're doing these short short bursts of kind of uncertain language, aren't you? Uncertain sentences. So take me through that, and then give me give me a phrase, and I'll give it a shot. Okay, in, ter- in terms of the mandible, then if you're because what he does after each question, after after he answers a question from the from the journalist, he kind of smiles, but it's a snarl like that. <laughs> So his front teeth are resting on his bottom lip. So that's the position. Oh. That's your starting point. And it look, he's quite mechanical. So what you're trying to do is you're kind of thinking, okay, hello, I'm Dominic Rob. And one of the main criticisms I've faced is that it looks like I'm reading off a script. Sorry, can you move your hand out of the way? I can't read that last one. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you bear that in mind, so if you rest your if you rest your so your your teeth, <laughs> that's right. And then <laughs> I've got my teeth. And, and then, <laughs> Luckily, no one can see what I'm doing here, but I must look like such an idiot. Okay, I've got my teeth. <laughs> you got you got your teeth like that. Got and, like that. And, and I say I'm robotic, and I. I, I listen. I'm nowhere that, near that. You know what? Though, but you, you've kind of you've kind of got the the frame of the impression there, just by putting your your teeth on your lip. I'm going to go and check that out in the mirror and work on it. And next time we speak, uh, I'll have that off. Stefano Paolini, I've honestly had a great laugh. It's been a very interesting talking to you today because you come at this from a completely unique direction, and I hope our listeners on making impression will. Appreciate how uh, you know how what a different approach to uh, impressionism, and thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Simon. This is the first time I've ever kind of looked at what I do and thought about it, and look, and so thanks for giving me the opportunity. It's really been really, really good fun well, as well. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and thanks again, and thanks to all our listeners on here on making an impression. We'll be back soon. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. <laughs>